welcome back to the Rural Roundup. This show is produced in association with the Scottish Government. I'm Kerry Hammond and on today's episode we join farm advisors Tiffany, George and Robert to find out about what's happening in the agricultural sector and what to be aware of for the next wee while. We're also joined by Diana from Nourish who's ready to tell us what's on her desk. George, how are you? I'm fine, Tiffany. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you, Robert? Yeah, I'm good. I'm a bit stressed. I've had one of those mornings, but no, we've, we've made it. And uh, yes, life is good. Good. What are you busy with this week, Robert? Everything. Spinning plates. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, George? Yeah, um, I think as we are starting to approach spring, um, the, the, the days are starting to stretch a wee bit. There's more and more ploughs out in the fields. People are getting a bit more excited about cropping plans and such like. So working out fallow areas and uh, what options they've got, really. It's uh, So it's it's definitely picked up in the last week or so. I always find January quite an interesting month. That the start of January is the kind of post-Christmas kind of, you know, farmers are always busy, but it's a kind of routine-type busy. And you get to the end of February and we're now looking to drilling and lambing and calving and you know the, the busy time it's maybe not quite here but yeah. certainly the it's coming and it's it's changing so it's always interesting january into february it's a calm before the storm yeah yeah definitely it's quite nice seeing the lighter mornings and lighter evenings as well at the moment i think a lot of people would have been delighted to hear the announcement about the agri-environmental climate scheme and if you applied in 2022 you will now know if you've been successful or not and um, if you have been successful you'll be getting your contracts and we'll be able to get underway with that if you haven't been successful i'm sure you're able to ask for feedback um, and have a look at your application and see if you want to go in in 2023 So the window for the schemes in 2023 has now opened. Um, There's two deadlines which you need to be aware of. So for slurry storage, the deadline is the 24th of March 2023. And for agri-environment and organics, the deadline is the 7th of June 2023. So if we just start with the slurry storage, um, this is now available nationally with the exception of areas designated as nitrate vulnerable zones and it is for businesses that currently house livestock and slurry based systems with less than six months storage capacity. Robert what are your thoughts? Yeah it's always it's always good to see you know slurry storage in the southwest we've benefited from slurry storage grants for a long time um, but there's still a need for you know, there are businesses that still need that leg up and a lot of these businesses are actually kind of new starts new entrants you know people that have bought a farm that that type of thing that the majority of the well-established businesses are fully compliant so it actually looks as if we're going to have quite a few slurry applications to do but not nothing like what we used to do back in the old srdp times we would be doing you know at that stage we had four rounds a year and it's was quite possible that we would be doing 10 or a dozen each and now probably I'll do a couple you know but certainly it's a thing the funding's changed so the the, the method of or the, the way they fund it used to be a probably a bit more generous and would give you more more funding for underground storage or or an above ground slurry store whereas now it's still 15 pounds a meter cubed which isn't isn't actually very much um it will certainly give you a big help with the lagoon 
But if you're going to be building a slurry store anyway, if you're going to be building a ring store, if you can get up to 30,000 of support for it, well, you know, why not go for it? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to see it there. Uh, I don't expect we're going to get inundated with work. But what I would say to people who are thinking about it is these things don't, they're not just a um, fill out a form, tick a box and you get the grant. They do take a bit of time. So the more time that we get, particularly given in a, you know, in a selfish context, we've got quite a lot on when it comes to IACs and things as well in amongst all this. So we do need to know fairly soon whether somebody's thinking about going going with it. So certainly if you're if you're even in two minds about it, contact whoever, you know, whatever consultant, whoever is going to do the do the application for you, contact them ASAP so you know where you're going with it. Yeah, I think I'd just like to reiterate what uh, Robert's saying. I think it's it's great that there is funding for uh, slurry stores. Um, there is a, a lot of benefits to being able to, you know, have that slurry storage so that you can actually spread it in the springtime when crops are growing, so you're going to get the best utilisation out of it. Um, I am based in the northeast of Scotland. I'm based in an NBZ area. Um, that. There, the funding obviously excludes NVZ areas, so there is a bit of frustration there that while there has been grants in the past for these farmers, um, you know, there is still investment required in slurry stores. And even for those thinking of expanding, going into new enterprises, um, there's just a, that lack of support really isn't there, really. Um, and it, yeah. There's no doubt if you're if you're doing a livestock enterprise at, at any uh, great degree, you know, an above ground slurry store can easily be pushing the, pushing the region up, you know, 50, 60, 70, maybe even 100,000 pounds and, and any bit of help is appreciated. It is great that they do still have the funding for slurry storage available, though, and um, definitely reiterate what Robert says, that if you're interested in, um, having an application put in, make sure you contact your consultant or advisor sooner rather than later. It does have the quicker deadline of the 24th of March. And the reason for this is to allow for applications to be assessed, scored and contracts issued where they've been approved by the end of April 2023. So if you then go and accept the contract, the work must be completed and claimed by the end of February 2024. Um, so it is quite a quick turnaround if you're wanting to have a slurry store. I think just to clarify on that one, Tiffany, it's the, the job must be, the the whole job must be completed and signed off by the end of the year and the claim must be submitted by the end of February. So actually the building of a slurry store, I mean for a, um, I nearly said a brand name there, but for a, an above ground slurry store, a popular company will, at the moment be between 12 and 14 weeks for a waiting list from order planning which you will need if you're doing if you're you know applying for a grant will be two to three months so that's the window for doing it's pretty tight so what we are saying about contacting your consultant actually contact the guy that's going to build it as well and see if it's is this actually achievable um because if it's not you know the as i say that it's a hard deadline it must be built by the the 31st of december 2023 Definitely a quick turnaround, so definitely great yeah. advice there, Robert. So moving on to organic conversion and maintenance, um, there have been some changes this year um, to what is allowed under EECS. So the area cap has been removed for 2023. 
If you're an existing contract holder with land in excess of the cap, the caps lifted in line with the new applicants from 2024 management year. The applications close on the 7th of June for this. George, do you have many organics up in the northeast? Uh, we do have one or two. Um, it was a popular while um, for a, you know, there are one or two wholly organic farms. Um, and also, it wasn't uncommon for part of farms to be converted to organic, particularly where there's you know good soils for potatoes or, or organic carrots. Um, and uh, yeah, that so it, it, it it's good, it's good. Um, but it, it needs a lot of um, you know obviously segregation can be an issue, and so it uh, it needs a bit of careful management. We have a few guys who are. Um, hill sheep farming low input systems and, and have converted a percentage of their farm basically the first thousand hectares can be organic or it will be funded as organic and then thereafter it you can make it organic but you don't receive funding for it so there's a, there's a few who are have a thousand hectares of an, of an organic unit and the rest of it out with so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens with those guys as well whether they're bought into the organic system enough, whether they're getting enough of a premium on the product as well to, to then go and convert their whole place. So yeah, an interesting change anyway. There's definitely much more of a push for organics now. So it is great to see that they have lifted the cap to try and encourage more people um, to go organic or to expand the organic area, which they've got. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. It's quite interesting to see, you know, globally, governments are very interested in organics and keen to get an increased organic area and we, we know from a conservation point of view and from a you know it's a nice story the organic thing but if we look at the actual market and what you know cost of living crisis is never off the news and people are trying to get as much stuff in their shopping basket as they possibly can for as little little money as possible and the actual organic market for stuff isn't that exciting so how you know it's nice to see some support for organic producers and it's you know an admirable thing but I think we also need to see support for organic marketing and organic you know that's having a push as to what the what the real advantages to consumers are here to to encourage them to to spend that wee bit extra um to, ju to justify the, the organic job because actually in a lot of cases the organic funding gets us organic but wouldn't it be nice if we could actually get enough from the marketplace we didn't actually need to get support to do it I, th I think they have to make sure as well um, that while there is a drive to increase the organic area, they have to put the industry infrastructure in place as well. You know, slaughterhouses and such like, they have to be in this country really as well. It, it's, you know, trying to reduce the carbon footprint is one thing, but if stock are having to be carted down to the middle or even the south of England, it's defeating the object somewhere on the line so that there needs to be you know if it's growing the area it needs to grow the infrastructure and grow the market as well it just needs to be a, a you know a structured build it really highlights the kind of there's so many factors involved in all things farming you know if we all go organic the carbon footprint of livestock production in scotland goes up so you know there's a it's the the whole climate conservation economy local story human health there's so much stuff involved in this um that you look at that i don't know if, if you've seen 
either of you that what's happened in Sri Lanka by basically they they went organic as a country they went organic and have completely and utterly bombed their their whole economy which you know I I'm I'm quite a big organic fan you know I'm, I'm a real fan of the principles of organics and how we can apply them into more conventional systems it's a nice journey to be on but broad brush broad brush organics are a wee bit scary I'm not sure everybody will be jumping into organics just with this changing in funding but there will be some who go and expand their area but there is funding available for different agri-environmental factors. This covers everything from wild bird seed to field margins um, to wade grazed grassland and a huge amount of other options which are available for farmers to try and encourage biodiversity on their farms. Yeah, there's a there's a, a big support for environmental schemes, certainly up here in the northeast. Um, yeah, capital items have been good in the past but but even now um when it's not quite so easy to get fencing and such like there's still the support there for them um up here there has been an initiative to support the corn buntings which gets a lot of support from farmers and, and it's been successful numbers have gone up um other options there's a lot of you know farmers are, are, are it's surprising when you are going through and each with a farmer just how aware they are of the various habitats and various species that are on their farms um you know they're they're, they're very aware of that and um a lot of them are are genuinely very very keen to um support these and and eeks eeks undoubtedly helps helps provide that that little bit of financial support whether it's whether it's feeding areas whether it's uh, wildlife corridors um whether it's areas for uh protecting water because there's a lot of priority catchments throughout scotland um these are all important and uh yeah eeks has, has played its part in, in being successful there you know it's worth thinking as well that eeks is now getting quite old so eeks has been on the go for quite a long time and all of these all of these type of schemes, as they age, get more complicated and they get more criticism. And there, are, there is quite, a, or there has been quite a bit in the media about how, you know, the process is quite long-winded. And that, but keep all that in mind, you know, or or put all that to the side. I think is what I'm trying to say. Keep put it to the side and think about what this could do for you. Uh, have that conversation, and if there are there are real opportunities there for getting funding for something good on your farm, so. It might not fit you. It might not fit what you're trying to do. If that's the case, leave it. But have you know, have have a think, have a look, and see what the options are for you to get a bit of funding into your business and a real positive environmental story too. Yeah, one thing I think I always say to, to farmers who are, are thinking about it: it's you're going to be living with this scheme for five years on your farm. Are you happy with it? Can can you farm quite happily with it being in place? Is it impact? How how's it going to impact your business going forward? And if it's something that is going to be awkward, difficult, yeah, it's not really for you. Um, but if it's something that you are happy to implement these things, it's it's working with your business, um, and and you're general genuinely enthusiastic about um the benefits. Then yeah, it's it's good. It's good to take part in. We've an eeks at home, and it's basically focused on well, there's a, a fair bit for water margins, and then the rest of it is a wader grazed grassland and late cut silage, um, at all all for waders, and a, so 
friend and colleague Alec Perry did my application because he's very you know he's very much in that world a uh, and in the business my the business partners my parents and, and others talk about the 13th of May is Alec Perry Day so that's the day that we can then open gates and graze the rest of the farm and the funny thing I think is that no, nobody in the business has actually met Alec Perry or know anything about Alec Perry they just know that's the day we're allowed to eat grass again so it does have you know there is a point in the year I mean what we get is a uh, compensation for it's not quite compensation for loss of income but it's compensation for doing something you wouldn't otherwise do so that that tight period just after lambing is is a, a sacrifice but actually it allows us to build up covers and start rotational grazing and things so it's, hmm. uh, it's good Make that we it do celebrate it. Alec Perry Day yeah. so Tiffany is it just business as usual with Eeks is it the same conditions and things as last year or has much changed so there have been some changes this year. Um, one of the main changes is there's not so many capital items available this year. This was due to budgetary pressures. So if you're wanting to restore um, dry stone dikes, uh, create ponds, um, maybe treatment of bracken, these options are no longer available. Also, improving public access, this is not available at all either this year. Um, I think a lot of people have used um, the agri-environment scheme to uh, plant hedgerows and creation of hedgerows option is limited to 500 linear metres uh, for the 2023 applications. So this is um, a big tightening up of how much hedgerows is allowed. Um, and also just for clarity, previously suspended options, um, which were suspended in 2022, remain suspended in 2023. So this is creation of species-rich grassland and heather restoration. Um, so it is worth remembering that there are some changes. There will be other changes um, if you go through the guidance. Make sure you thoroughly read the guidance uh, when you put in your application to make sure um, you're ticking all the boxes. And I think the other thing that's worth saying is if you've got a designated site, it's worth um, contacting Nature Scott before you put in your application and they'll be able to give you some advice and might be able to provide you with an endorsement as well. You might find that you're not in the position to go into an agri-environment climate scheme um, and it might just not quite fit your farm, but you still might have an interest in nature and biodiversity. So why not take part in the Big Farmland Bird Count? This takes place between the 3rd and the 19th of February. Um, so all you need to do is go out on one day and spend 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, you can record what species of birds you're seeing, what numbers of birds, what the weather's like, the habitat, um, and record all these things. And you're then able to submit your results to the Big Farmland Bird Count. And we'll put a link into the show notes. So it's something that's worthwhile doing. And it'll just help see what the changes in populations of farmland birds are. And I think there's nobody better than a farmer to do that job as well. You know, I'm always amazed by the depth of knowledge farmers have. So it's maybe not book, you know, they've, they've read a book on ornithology or they've done a degree in it or anything, but the knowledge they've got on the birds that they've, you know, the, the local birds to them is phenomenal. And I, I think it's it's great. It's a, you know, it's a great um, opportunity really to, to note down where we are and also give us a chance. We still, we still get the beaten with the big stick about farming intensification and we are the reason that all the birds aren't there. And actually... I mean, we've got a lot of the habitats and we're now, most farmers are pushing pretty hard to 
do a better job than they than they used to do and and focus more on it. So I think there's um, there's a great opportunity there to do a bit of positive shouting about the good things we do. Yeah, I think that's right, Robert. Um, Farman's moved on from the the seventies and eighties. Um, you know the the you know farmers they can't remove hedgerows now. They can't remove stone dikes. Um, a lot of the habitats have to remain in place, uh, and 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 even the farming practices, you know, the the a lot of a lot of Scotland's in in NBZ areas, so they're kind of restricted the fertilizer they can use. Um, uh, EFA, the introduction to EFA, sees various parts of fields and such like basically left uh, every year, uh, and there's also you know eeks being participated in, and also agrochemicals. It's very different agrochemicals that farmers are using nowadays from those of the 70s and 80s, um, which uh, they did the job, but um, probably less thought was given to the, to the wider environment. I think the farmland bird count thing as well also gives us a chance. So my, my frustration at home is that we, all the predator species that, you know, attack our small birds and our waders are all protected. And I don't want to see... You know, there's nothing I want to see decimated or eradicated or anything. But we've got a pretty dominant or a pretty strong supply of all things predator, and the pressure on the prey species is is pretty high. So I think it's things like this that allow, you know, we've no data for that. I'm j- I'm just saying that. But actually, if we go and do some counting and go and go and actually assess where we're at, we can actually go and see. Look, we've got, you know, way more crows and. Jackdaws and magpies and all you know buzzards, all kinds of things. With loads of them, and we've, we're really struggling with the other stuff. So, it's once we get some data, we we maybe can go and have arguments where we uh, allow a bit of predator control down the line. It's definitely good to know what birds you've got on the farm, and it would be interesting to compare what you have now. And if you do go into an agro environment scheme, what you have in five years' time, once you've done that scheme, just to see what the difference has been. Um, over those five years or if you make any other changes it's good to see the difference thanks robert and george cheers stephanie yeah thanks stephanie diana from nourish a food justice project officer joins me today to discuss what's on her desk and to tell us some more about six interesting projects for farmers and crofters Cool, so my name is Diana Garduño Jimenez and I work with Nourish Scotland, uh, which is a charity where we focus on food systems and we focus on trying to make sure uh, that everyone has access to food that is sustainable, that is accessible, that is affordable and that is uh, good for people and planet. And uh, yeah, I'm a food justice project officer at Nourish Scotland. So I'm from Mexico. I I moved away from Mexico 10 years ago, but I first moved to France, then I moved to Brighton where I studied uh, my undergrad, and then I moved to Edinburgh to do a master's um, in design for change, which was specifically mixing together art practices and environmental and social uh, challenges and kind of trying to, to use art to work through those complex environmental and social challenges. I am living in Edinburgh at the moment. I've been here now for four years and I something that I love about Edinburgh is all the access to green space how 
it's super easy to just go and climb up a hill, uh, any one of the seven hills. I really love that. And I really love the people and I love learning about uh, the history and just in general, the history of Scotland and seeing how there's some similarities in, uh, in some ways in histories about the way that food is produced uh, in Scotland as well as similar histories in Mexico and having different uh, local forms of food production. I really like learning about those. Nourish Scotland works with all actors across the food system and obviously farmers, uh, crafters and growers are a key actor within the food system. And so part of what we do is try to make sure that the policy reflects what people working in that area, in food systems, want and need and think and know. So for, for us, it is critical to engage with the people in the food system and farmers, as I said, crofters and growers are key in this. So right now we're running a project uh, that's funded by the Knowledge Transfer Innovation Fund by the Scottish government. It's called Agroecology Enabling the Transition. And the idea with this project is to bring farmers, crofters and growers who are engaging with agroecology in different ways. Maybe some of them have practiced agroecology for a very long time. Maybe others are just trying out some practices. And maybe some are a bit skeptical, but are perhaps interested just to learn a bit more about agroecology and hear if it's something that could perhaps uh, be useful for them in some ways. And so what we're doing is uh, we've set up six different groups around Scotland and each of these groups um, they're formed by farmers, crofters and growers and they come and the idea is that they, they share knowledge. They, they do different farm visits so they might visit uh, some of the farms uh, of the people in the group or they might go to other farms and just see in practice what's going on and get an opportunity to ask questions. That's What's really key about the project as well is that we really want to encourage people to feel like it's okay to not know. I feel like a lot of the time we can be caught up in like, oh, I don't want to ask something because it's going to look like I don't know this or like I'm not intelligent enough or all of these different things that come up when we're trying to learn something new. So what we really are trying to do with this project is create spaces where people feel like they can ask questions, like they can have fun, like they can make friends as well, friends and just other um, growers and um, in their area that they can then later reach out to and ask questions and maybe like have experiments together. So, so as Nourish, what we try to do is uh, listen to farmers, uh, bring farmers, crofters and growers uh, to the front. Uh, we want to make sure that they are the ones kind of driving, driving the change and driving the agricultural transformation that is happening right now in Scotland. Uh, because we believe and we know that they have all the underground knowledge that will be needed. So the first of the six groups is the pasture poultry feed group. And this group is focused in the west coast of Scotland. And something that this group has been doing that has been quite interesting is that they've been looking at insect, um, insect feed for poultry. That's just been something that I think has brought up a lot of different farmers, crofters and growers to, to hear about what that is and to think if that's something that they might, that they might consider. And the second group is the market gardening group. 
um, which is focused in central Scotland. This group has been great for different um, starters and new entrants to farming who want to perhaps hear from other more experienced people, uh, even just on the side of how to set up a business. So they're sharing a lot of knowledge on that topic. And then we have the supporting biodiversity within island-based farming and crofting group, uh, which is based in Isla, Jura, Giga and Collinsey. Uh, then the grazing group in Northeast Scotland, uh, the soil health group in Southwest Scotland, and the biodiversity and profitability group, which I co-facilitate um, in the Scottish borders. And if any of these groups sounded like something interesting for you, maybe a topic that you would like to explore more or just to meet other people who are perhaps uh, doing practical things around the different topics, please feel free to look at the show notes and my email will be there as well as the website address so you can find out more. We still have a couple of farm visits planned until March, so you might even be able to, uh, to join one if you like. One thing that I'm particularly passionate about are the interrelations between humans and the environment. Uh, so, for example, in Mexico, we have, well, corn comes from, from Mexico, from North America, and uh, the original plant uh, is called Teosintle, and corn would not exist if humans had not um, worked with this plant, with this Teosintle. So it was thousands of years development and working together for us to be able to have corn. So for me, that it makes me feel very passionate because a lot of the time we can hear that the right way forward for the environment is to separate humans from nature. We should just conserve. We should leave land untouched. But we have so many examples throughout history of how the relationship between humans and nature can actually be mutually beneficial. So so that's something that I'm very passionate about and that I think we can, we can continue to learn more from as we transition um, the way that we do agriculture in Scotland. So a uh, fun fact, and perhaps not a party trick yet, but something that has made my partner chuckle in the past few months is that I've been really focusing on my toe health. So I went to a yoga class and I noticed that I was really unable to separate my toes and all the other people in the class were able to do so. <laughs> so I, I just became uh, just very focused on trying to be able to do that as well, because apparently it improves your balance. So I've been doing different toe stretches and I can confidently say that I can now separate my toes a tiny bit more than I was able to at the start. So just to finish off, uh, it's been great to be here on the Rural Roundup. And if you're interested in learning more about agroecology or toe stretching, I would be really keen to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rural Roundup. Throughout February and March, the Rural Roundup is going to be releasing bonus episodes, each telling a short story of a successful diversified farm business in Scotland. They're well worth a listen. We released one last week about Caroline Hamilton at Cairns Farm Estate. Subscribe to this channel to make sure you get notified of any bonus episodes and we'll see you back here again on the 22nd of February for our usual fortnightly roundup. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, 
crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.